Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm TJ. No, no quote? Uh, no, well, threw me off. Yeah, no quote this week. I, um, I was looking through. I don't know that I can no find No Ned Beatty impression? That... No, not yet. But, At least uh, not from this movie, right? I, I Welcome to Sunnyside. I'm TJ. I wanted to pull a line from an earlier Toy Story and just go, and I'm one sad, strange little man. But it wasn't going to be. It's also manipulating the line. So I am just TJ yeah. this week. That movie was not nine of the best picture, which it is was not interesting. Yeah. No. Anyway, this is Serious Film People, which is a podcast about movies that were actually nominated for Best Picture, specifically those nominated for Best Picture uh, in 2010 at the 2011 Academy Awards. And this is the eighth episode, I just discerned by looking at the list, the eighth episode in our series, which means alphabetically we're discussing Toy Story 3, the third installment in the Toy Story quadrilogy, question mark? I don't really know. Who's <laughs> yeah. to say? Um... <laughs> What what is a five called? Is isn't there a Toy Pentology? Story five? Is it Quintology? Talking about now? Yeah, there's. Yeah, I don't know. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. There's a discussion about five, um, and I think because isn't I think um, Bob suggested at an earners meeting or something earlier th- this year. That is in 2023 when we're recording this. Bobby Iggs. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. That uh, yeah. there would be a fifth one, well, maybe. And I think Disney's, Tim Allen suggested Disney's... that there might be, but I haven't heard <laughs> Oh, Tim Allen has the idea to do a fifth one? That's well, a good idea, Tim. Exactly. Yeah. So the like, question just in is... case the Santa Claus TV series doesn't revive my career, I could use well, another well, toy. Speaking honest. of which, I was going to say that it, it makes sense that Bob Iger is pushing it, too, because Disney's had, had a rough 2023 at the box office. Pixar yeah. in particular has had a rough couple of years at the box office. So, you know, go back to the well. I did just read, uh, apparently, there's the a Cars 4. They're working on Cars 4 now. Oh. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure they're working on a car. Store. Is it up to four? I mean, that the car series for me is yes. kind of like that. You remember those CDs? Now that's what I call music volume, and now it's up to <laughs> like ninety-one. And you're like, really? Did we get that? That's where I'm with cars. I had a. There was a part of me that thought that they might give up on cars when Lasseter left because that was his like mm, yeah, his that baby. Was his thing, yeah. But um, apparently not. Apparently they're just going to milk that. Did Lasseter actually leave, or is he still? Did he just stop hugging people? And still around? <laughs> I, thought, I thought. I thought he had left. Uh, Disney. Sure. He was uh, a part of this movie. I'm pretty sure he was. Uh, well, Toy Story three is made by like the Brain Trust. Like ever. Yeah. I don't know if Pete Doctor was in on this one, but like Andrew Stanton was in on this one. John Lasseter was in on this one. Who actually had uh, Lee Unkirk? I think was in on this one. Who actually has the directing credit on it? It is. I believe uh, directed Unkirk. by Lee Unkirk. Yeah. 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 Uh, Unk Rich. I'm sorry. I call him Unkirk. I'm just rearranging letters in his last name at my at my leisure. Unk Rich. I don't know if I've ever actually heard his name said out loud, but Lee Unk Rich. I'm assuming. Anyway, Toy Writ- Story 3. Written by um, Michael Arndt. Uh, we'll get to that. We will okay. get to Michael Arndt. Um, Toy Story 3 came out in, I believe, the summer of 2010. Uh, June 18th, 2010. Uh, every episode of this series, we've been talking about, like, you know, what we remembered of these movies coming out, because we were all 20 when they came out. <laughs> um, <laughs> Toy Story 3... I remember distinctly it being announced, and uh, I remember it coming out. I saw it in theaters. I was 20, like I just said. And uh, this is one of the first movies where I distinctly remember having the thought, wow, that movie's probably going to make a lot of money because (laughs) kids are going to go see it because it's a kid's movie, but also people who are like 20 and 25 are also going to go see it because it's a sequel to a movie that came out when they were kids. How about that? Mm -hmm. 
gold star for 20-year-old Josh for <laughs> identifying the business strategy of every major studio for the next 15 years. Uh, and I was right. It made an awful lot of money. It over did. a billion, right? Over a billion. Over Bill. Uh, I, have a, I have a list of like box office records that we can touch later. Uh, but first, Ken, did you contribute to the box office records in 2010? For Toy Story 3. I did. Yes, I did go see it in theaters. And this was also, this is 2010. This is coming right after Pixar releasing Wally and Up the previous two years. Yeah. So, yeah, I had a roll, man. I and Rat Two the year before that. I remember going into this movie not only um, excited for the return of Toy Story after a decade, but also with some anticipation that it was going to try to, you know, gut me a little and, and try to have me filling the theater with tears at least at some point so i went in like trying to gird myself a little bit against pixar but also fully welcoming uh re-welcoming the characters into my life um yeah i do distinctly remember going to see this movie in theaters yeah tj how about you yeah i saw it uh at the esquire um if i remember this is weird that i i can remember meals like this i (laughs) walked across the street from st louis bread co which some of you mistakenly might refer to as Panera, but it's St. Louis Bread Co. You're wrong. Yeah. Did you have a lemonade that gave you a heart attack? No, I had a broccoli cheddar soup in a bread bowl. So you talk about a lunch, man. Yeah. Like I was, I'm surprised I didn't yeah. fall asleep. And then I, uh, yeah, I, I did not make it through Toy Story. That makes taking a nap. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, got bread bowls. What a terrible idea. Uh, so uh, anyway, I get over there and I was like, this is calling back to my childhood. So I'm going to do something I usually don't do because I was seeing the movie by myself. Uh, I got a, mm. I got a red like cherry slushy uh because like why not get a slushy at the movie theater because i felt like i was nine years old and uh it's been decades since i've had a slushy at the movie theater yeah yeah yeah. um had to pee a bunch during it but uh yeah went by Mm -hmm. myself and i I do remember this being like i had a college professor start talking about toy story 3 in the middle of a lecture because he had just seen it and was like you guys like I know you think you're cool, you're in college, but this is actually a really good movie and you need to go see it. And I remember thinking that that was kind of a bizarre, um, <laughs> a bizarre plug. Uh, but it, it did kind of have a pretty immediate cultural footprint, I think. Not just oh, because sure. not just because it was a sequel to a beloved uh, property, but I think there was... Two I, beloved movies. I, I think there was conversation at the time of, and I'm sure you guys will get into this later, but like, is this the best Pixar movie? Is this the best animated movie ever? I remember people talking like that. So it was it was a bit of a big deal. <laughs> were you were you talking like that in 2010? I, I was listening like that, but I don't think I would have. <laughs> I I don't think I don't think Great I answer. I would have um, ascribed to either of those superlatives. I don't think so. Mm, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I believe uh, Ken, you mentioned Up the year before. Yeah. Up and Toy Story 3 were both nominated for Best Picture, and um, the year before, in 2008, Wally was not, but there, there, there are only five nominees and not ten. And I think the snubbing of both Wally and The Dark Knight was a large reason why they expanded from five to ten. Exactly, yeah. And so Up and Toy Story 3 benefit. Would you put Wally above Up and Toy Story 3, Ken Dussolds? I personally would. I I have yeah. a particular affinity for Wally. I think it's a brilliant brilliant film all around, not just animation. Um, but yeah, and I, I do. I I mean, at the time there was no question they looked to expand the field around that period, exactly because the two films that even critics all seem to agree on in two thousand eight as being one of among the top five films 
neither Wally nor the Dark Knight made it, and part of the concern was, are are the Academy actively keeping out films other than these dramas, these kind of quote unquote Oscar Baity, not not the, not a, the not reader, a, the reader was exactly. nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, it should be tough. should be clear when we see Oscar Baity, not Warren Baity or Ned Baity, but Oscar Baity <laughs> type films. That's the, their cousin, exactly. Um, yeah, so. And the public demanded that superhero movies be given a fair shake, and then the monkey's paw clenched. <laughs> and here we are, <laughs> twenty years later. It is uh, weird. It is weird, though, that we got we didn't get Wally in the Dark Knight. The next two years, there are there's an animated film included in the list, though. Right. Yeah. That's that's what I'm saying. Is like I think I think Wally's probably a better movie than both Up, or it's definitely a better movie than Up, in my opinion. Yeah. It's probably a better movie than Toy Story three as well. Yeah. Uh, but that's a little bit closer, but. We'll talk about it when we get around to that year, perhaps, but Up is one of those movies that definitely benefits from one portion of the film standing out as every, the one thing everyone talks about after the fact. Yeah, I think that's going to come up later. Yeah. The, it that. Is it the birds um, on the island? Is that what you're talking about? No, it's actually the dogs flying fighter jets. Exactly. Oh, yeah, People yeah, yeah. The dogs I, I can't believe I forgot about that. You know what? Yeah. Fun yeah. fact, Christopher Plummer wasn't originally supposed to voice the old man in that film. It was Kevin Spacey. Just throwing that out there, if, <laughs> but more you know. And then he wouldn't do it for all the money in the world. <laughs> I'm currently editing TikToks from our LA Confidential episode that we recorded like many months ago at this point. So I'm like staring at Kevin Spacey's face a lot recently. So uh, you're, you're bringing up your you and, memories. You and Tucker um, Carlson, apparently. Ooh. Me and Tucker Carlson, <laughs> as we're recording this, uh, Kevin Spacey, in his tradition of releasing a weird <laughs> video on Christmas Day, <laughs> this time with his pal Tucker Carlson. Ooh. Yeah. The two kings of cancellation. Um, anyway, TJ, you said your college professor brought up Toy Story 3 to you guys and insisted it was, you know, uh, worth discussion. Uh, what do you think this movie's about? It's um, about a lot of stuff. It what is. Say it's about, well, all of the Toy Story movies... And I learned this in a college classroom, money well spent. Uh, all, all of them are, it can be read as like uh, Marxist ideology where materialism actually takes on a being of its own when you're not around, that your objects have lives to them. not where I thought you were going, but I'm very fascinated. <laughs> uh, you. Sorry. And no, that's okay. That's okay. And so there, there's a really interesting like, read where this is a Marxist critique of object fetishism and commodity fetishism. That's not where he was going with it. Um, <laughs> but um, I, nor am I, is that really what I would say this movie particularly about this movie, I think at its core is an existential crisis of what do you do when you being a toy um, do when you're no longer needed by your your job or your loved ones in a sense the toys become Ooh. empty nesters that is what all three movies are about is like what do you do like i, I mean I, I when you said all three movies are about mm, i thought you were gonna say mortality that's the m word i would use no all, marxism all is the correct answer <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah i mean in the first one woody's replaced by buzz and suddenly he doesn't know what to do with himself now that he's not not useful anymore mm -hmm. in his mind at least and the second movie is um, you know, the idea of your kid outgrowing you and instead getting to live on in a museum. So like living forever instead of being thrown away, but like living forever behind a, you know, pane of glass instead of being played with. So like, what's, a, 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 what's a life worth living is the second movie, basically, um, longevity or, you know, being loved is, mm -hmm. is the second movie. And then this one's kind of playing in the same sandbox, which is, you know, um, 
what kind of I think this is a pretty interesting companion piece to Toy Story 2 in that it's kind of the same idea of like about moving on and you know once one personal connection has run its course finding a new lease on life with a new personal connection it's almost like you know about like maybe about like widowers and widowism or you know Let, letting go in a uh, sense yeah you know? letting go uh, and yeah. and the you know death not necessarily always literally it could just be kind of the death of a relationship but it is yeah. about kind of the grieving process of uh death and, and marxism of course but <laughs> and also about purpose i think both <laughs> toy story 2 and 3 are both about like purpose like what is what's the point of me being alive you know and again mm -hmm. is it just to make as many kids ha as happy as possible or just make one kid very happy that kind of thing um ken what else do you think toy story 3 is about if anything well i think i think the one of the overarching themes of all three films is also the kind of found or formed family aspect um oh yeah for sure yeah. the fact that all of these all of these the first one and second one well, and, and the third one, the third one, the, the, the major song coming out of this movie that wins, and we'll talk about it later, is We Belong Together. I mean, for God's sakes, you couldn't beat someone. Who's the we in that sense, do you think? <laughs> I don't really know, actually. Probably the p proletariat. That's. <laughs> um, sorry, anything else about the movie's about before we move on to the cast? Uh, I mean, I think, I think everyone listening knows exactly what Toy Story is about. And we all take something. I think somewhat personal from it, depending on your age and when you first were introduced to these films. I mean, our, our generation grew up with the originals. And so there's just also this, this genuine connection to the characters and kind of, I don't know, kind of this reflective introspection on our lives and how we interact with our material, our material goods to some degree, as well as if you want to, um, expand it to, beyond the toys, our relationship with, with our family and our closest friends, perhaps, as we get older, and perhaps go in different directions and split apart. Um, the third one obviously touches on that quite directly, given the fact that we are missing a couple of characters who were in the first couple of movies, so they have to at least yeah, even Bo. subtly, exactly, subtly address that. Uh, you mentioned... That we grew up with these characters, Ken, because we did. The first movie came out when we were five. It was a VHS I owned and watched over and over again. Um, and I want to talk about the cast. And I, I guess the first thing I want to say is, like, I think I take for granted how good Tim Allen and Tom Hanks are in, in all of these. Uh, you know, I have a relationship to Tim Allen's work. I watched Home Improvement as a kid. I really love the movie The Santa Claus. Like, really love it. And I don't really think of Tim Allen when I think of Buzz Lightyear. I just think of Buzz Lightyear. And obviously, I think all of us have a very, you know long-standing relationship with the work of Tom Hanks, but I don't really think of Tom Hanks when I think of Woody. I just think of Woody. You know, they're just Woody and Buzz. They're not Tom Hanks and Tim Allen. And, like, um, I know, I think there's something said about that, that, like, I, I, I think it's easy to overlook how good they are, I guess. Mm -hmm. Just because, like, I feel like it was kind of stunt casting in 1995 because they were both, like, the two biggest stars in the world, casting them as your leads. But, like, I don't know. Like, it's it's hard to, like... The fact, it's hard to think of the fact that's Tim Allen. The fact that the cast list, I mean, even in 1995, it's a really, really ridiculously fascinating and interesting cast of, of people who have kind of been with this franchise, even by 2010 with Toy Story 3, for now 10 or 15 years. And Can I name got, them? I'm sorry? Wallace Shawn, yeah. Don Rickles, John Ratzenberger, Joan Cusack, and Estelle Harris. Yeah. Like, damn, dude. Like those mm -hmm. are all people that just been were around for 
yeah, if not all three of them, and at least two of them. You know? Don't don't forget Laurie Metcalf. Yes, as, as well, she mom. wasn't. Was she? Was she in the first one? She was. So. She voiced. Yeah, yeah, she voiced the mom really? in the first one. Mm-hmm. Okay, wow. I, I didn't know that. My bad. Because like you don't you don't see her face in the first one. They do like a Charlie Brown situation right. mm-hmm. or a Muppet Baby mm-hmm. situation where they don't see the parents' face, but you see her in this one. Yeah, maybe I mean, that's why I'm thinking. Maybe maybe that's why I wasn't aware it was her back then. The the supporting yeah, cast, my cast mom. The solid supporting cast and supporting voice work you get alone from Don Rickles, John Ratzenberger, and Wallace Shawn, like those mm-hmm. three are so solid throughout the franchise, and make the first one as successful as it is. To your point, there is a bit of stunt casting. You've got Tom Hanks, who remember 1995, he's coming off of. Just recently having won two back to back Oscars. Two consecutive best actor Oscars. Yeah. yeah. And then Apollo 13. And, and, uh, to your point, Tim Allen has one of the number one television shows, uh, in America at that point. And loves cocaine. <laughs> he did, you know that? He had a pass. He's from Detroit. Um, but these guys Ooh. are. <laughs> <laughs> My apologies to our listeners in Detroit. Um, um, Lions? I'm going to let that one just sit there though. Those, those two though, they really do show up for this movie and these roles, so you have to give them a lot of credit because this isn't just a kid's movie to them. They showed up prepared and delivered. And it says something that uh, if you look at like Disney films during the Renaissance era, now obviously this is Pixar, it's a little different, but animated films, every once in a while you get an animated film like Beauty and the Beast where sure they pulled Angela Lansbury and Jerry Orbach out to go ahead and voice characters and they're somewhat familiar names but they're Broadway based or you got right Robin Williams right in Genie you got Jeremy Irons in The Lion King but you're just starting to get into this uh, this kind of window of time when suddenly the studios are like let's get really big names to voice our characters and these two start of a bad trend Start of a very bad trend. But that continues to this day. That's like to the expense of movies, animated movies. Sorry, continue. But to their credit, Hanks and, and Alan really knock it out of the ballpark. I mean, you can't to your yes. point, you can't imagine anybody else doing these these voices. To to sort of split the difference here, um, I, I think that a key with at least with Toy Story Three is not necessarily the stars that they get, but the way in which they really perfectly match the character design to the type of person they cast in smaller roles. So in Toy Story 3, I'm thinking of like uh, Jeff Garland being Kristen Buttercup, Schall. Kristen Schaal in there as Trixie, and uh, Timothy Dalton yes. as, as Mr. Pricklepants. Uh, <laughs> no, one's, no one's seeing this like because they're huge, like Timothy Dalton, like they loved the living daylights and they're just <laughs> want to see Toy Story 3, you know? But, but like those are three examples, I think, of... Out, kind of not the first people you would think of outside of the box casting that work really, really well. Uh, Michael Keaton as Ken yeah. as well, yeah. I think. Yeah, we're also mm-hmm. gonna. I do. I do want to touch on that because this film also might be the best cinematic adaptation of Barbie I've ever seen. Barbie and Ken. Ken, you stepped on my line. I've had Shots that. Fired. I've had that joke planned for like ten days. I apologize, and I can't tell you how disappointed I am. <laughs> That you just did that to me. Do you want me to? Do you mean to cut that out and then you can just do the joke yourself, TJ? Uh, it was like we were both planning it, and then he just Barbenheimered it right out of nowhere. Um, <laughs> uh, other people, other people in the voice cast that I think are only in Toy Story three. Arlie Ermy was not the Army Man in Toy Story one, but was the mm. Army Man in Toy Story three. I think he has like three lines. But how, great. how dare um, you cast anybody but Arlie Ermy as the Army guy, <laughs> Sarge? Great question. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Ned Beatty is Lotso. Uh, I think he's 
excellent in this. RP to both those people, by the way, mm-hmm. Arthur Emery and Ned Beatty. Uh, Ned Beatty's most important role is obviously as Rudy's dad in the movie Rudy, you know, as we all know, mm-hmm. as we all can agree. Uh, again, Michael Keaton is Ken. Uh, I, I had Laurie Metcalf written down. It's just Toy Story 3 voice, but you guys are telling me now. You're, you're telling me this for the first time. I didn't know that. Um, <laughs> she was the voice of the mom in all of them. Um, do you guys know who voices Barbie in this? Jody Benson, who is the voice Jody of Jody Benson, yes. The who Little I, Mermaid. I had never heard of, but who. Exactly. She's the voice of Ariel in um, the original Little Mermaid and also in like every subsequent, like straight to video sequel and also a few tv shows she was like the voice of ariel for forever basically uh she was also the voice of barbie in toy story 2 where i think barbie was introduced to this toy story world in a smaller role and um i think she also was the voice replacement for Belle in like a like a disney tv show in the mid 90s after beauty and the beast was a big deal in the early 90s so she's a big uh Disney That's icon. possible. Yeah. She and Paige O'Hara, who voiced, voiced Belle in the the film Beauty and the Beast, are kind of like two of the go-to princess voices, I think, for Disney, particularly mm-hmm. out of the 90s. Like, they, they did all of... They, they regularly popped up in direct-to-video stuff, television stuff, and Disney still taps them whenever needed for those voices. In fact, Jody Benson was just... And I believe a cameo role in the live action Little Mermaid that no one really I feel liked. She had to appear, yeah. Um, <laughs> she she made a pop up. Well, Rob Marshall made it, so how could anybody like it or care about it? Ooh, ooh, shots ooh. fired at Rob Marshall across Ouch. the bow. Man, Ouch. yeah, ooh. folks from Detroit and Rob Marshall not having a good uh, good week on the podcast. Well, let me ask you this: Has Rob Marshall ever made a good movie after Chicago? Honest question. He had it coming. He had it coming. <laughs> If I think of one, I'll answer you. Okay, well, you think about it while I talk about the development of Toy Story 3. Uh, it was in development for a while, a while, because, you know, this came out 11 years after Toy Story 2. Um, so it was initially developed at Disney without Pixar due to friction between then-CEO of Pixar, Steve Jobs, ever heard of him, and then-CEO of Disney, Michael Eisner. So Jobs and Eisner were going at it. Um, during the Disney without Pixar development, there were a few different versions of the script. One was a uh, murder mystery that took place at Andy's grandma's house, um, which I think they kind of like b- borrowed aspects of for Toy Story 4. Um, and then there's a different version of the script that uh, there was a Buzz Lightyear recall and uh, Buzz is shipped off to Taiwan and the toys ship themselves to Taiwan to like keep Buzz from being destroyed. And um, one of those two movies was supposed to come out in 2008 uh, but neither one did, obviously, because Pixar uh, Disney bought Pixar in 2006, and so the Disney without Pixar versions were both scrapped, and the project went back to Pixar's queue. And uh, again, they abandoned the previous versions, and uh, Andrew Stanton, who directed, I believe, Finding Nemo and Finding Dory, who's Correct. again in the Brain Trust, uh, he wrote a treatment for Toy Story 3 without reading either of the previous scripts because they just wanted to make a clean start. They didn't want to take anything from the existing scripts. And so that was in 2006. Well, my understanding, I could be wrong, I believe Andrew Stanton had a part in the story for all for both of the previous Toy Stories as well. He's been with Pixar this he probably whole time. Did, yeah. So Again, he's in the brain trust. He's one of the main guys there. Right. Yeah. And in fact, Stanton, well, I bring this up because Stanton is, based on what I when I looked this up, Stanton is the only individual directly associated with the stories of all four Toy Story films. Hmm. Okay. Well, again, here are the treatment, so which would like the, the the bare bones of the story, but the script was 
uh, written by Michael Arndt. Uh, he was brought on in 2007. Uh, TJ, do you know a fun Oscar fact about Michael Arndt by chance? Um, his first two produced screenplays were nominated for Academy Awards. Uh, the first one he won Best Original Screenplay for Little Miss Sunshine, and then he's nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay for Toy Story 3. Is that the tidbit you were looking for, Josh? Because if it's not, I don't that's, know what to tell you. That's the exact tidbit I was looking for. <laughs> he is, by as far as I know, the only screenwriter, or at least the first screenwriter, if not the only screenwriter, who his first two produced movies were both nominated for Original and then for Adapted Screenplay. And again, mm-hmm. he won for Little Miss Sunshine. Um, I like him. I like his, his, his writing. He has a really good um, like half-hour-long video online you can find somewhere where he kind of like talks about how he comes up, like how he develops stories, and talks specifically about the development of Toy Story 3 and just like the kinds of things he's looking for, like get a story started, like what, what goes into Act 1, what goes into Act 3, and that kind of thing. It's uh, really interesting, to me at least, so um, I like that dude. He's also got a he's, – he's gotten some tough assignments over the last decade because you figure – they offer him Toy Story 3. That's a lot of weight to put on your shoulders coming in. Hey, put together a screenplay Oh yeah, as the third. And then he's also uh, the screenwriter. The Force Awakens. The Force Awakens and this past year's um, Hunger Games continuation. Well, he wrote the first Hunger Games, I think, or one of the original Hunger he worked Games on, movies. Yeah, and he then worked on the, one of the originals, yeah. But still, the yes. fact that he kind of just gets stuck. Here, can you try putting together a screenplay for something that hasn't been touched in a few years. Uh, good luck. That's yeah. pretty much what they do. Well, he's talented. He's risen to the challenge, I think, for the most part. Uh, that's a good segue, you bring up The Force Awakens, because I would ask you guys, is this a legacy sequel? Again, this came, uh, Toy Story came out in 1995. Toy Story 2 came out in 1999. Toy Story 3 comes out in 2010, so 11 years after the fact. But, I don't know, It's kind of, I think it kind of rides the line. Let me answer your question with a question. What is a legacy sequel and is it dependent or a legacy sequel if you will and is it dependent upon merely the number of years passing in between if yes where where's that line does it have to be a decade <laughs> i think it is a combination first of all you know when you see it like the supreme court pornography and um that's my answer to what is a legacy sequel and i think it's a combination of time passing between installments but also like time passing in the world of the characters mm-hmm. and if um uh if there's a passing of the torch of sorts you know if the main characters from the previous installment are maybe like sidelined in the new installment that's maybe a sign of a legacy sequel um and again i think like by any by any definition i think this is like has one foot on either side of the line of like yeah. normal sequel versus legacy sequel. It's kind of both. Yeah, I think it's a little difficult to to kind of couch this one because in my mind, I keep thinking about the fact that uh, a legacy sequel usually is something they come back to, whereas I feel like Toy Story is something that was perhaps always th- this particular the third ver- the third film something that was always theoretically in development. It just never got fully off the ground it was in various stages at, at any given moment it's like if you'd asked is there going to be a third one everyone would seem to be in agreement yeah we're going to get there it just doesn't the fact seem they to be worked rushed. on it for like six or eight years you know yeah of the 11 years in between the two installments it was being worked on for majority of that time right. so like it feels like it was just i think it's more traditional sequel. yeah it's yeah. just delayed it's a just delayed a production yeah i also think that maybe this is just like a personal thing the fact that we were nine when part two came out and we were 20 when part three came out, that's more than half a lifetime. 
literally. So like, it, it felt like a legacy sequel to me at the time, even though that wasn't really a term people used yet. But like, had Toy Story two come out when we were you know twenty five, and then Toy Story three came out and we were thirty six, which we are not thirty six yet. <laughs> I just want to go on record, we are not. Um, I feel like that would feel a little bit different. Um, like for example, Cars four. I, I, I think that's going to come out soon. I don't know when Cars three came out. Maybe in we were in college or something. So like that may be an equivalent amount of time, but like, because we were adults when three and four, you know, it doesn't really feel like that much time has passed. I guess. I don't know. I think there has to be an element of, um, we weren't sure this was going to happen. Like, and upon its arrival, it's met, it's met with some nostalgic goodwill. So for example, like they're also working on a inside out two. And I don't think anybody's like, Oh my gosh, mm. I can't wait to get back to those characters. It's been so long Even sort of thing. That'll be nine years. That came out in 2015, I think. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think there was a feeling with this one that it was some sort of like call, you know, call back some sort of, uh, um, hearkening to <laughs> the, the good old days, uh, with it. So I can see what you mean with asking that question, but I think it is, more of a traditional sequel because the main characters aren't, as you said previously, aren't really sidelined. Yeah. But there is a passing of the torch, but like not really. It's like the tertiary characters torches do the torch passing, not the main characters. And the main characters are the torch. They kind of are. Yeah. Maybe the, maybe the real torch was the friends we made along the way. It's not a, it's Um, not a one-to-one comparison. If you look at the modern standard bearer, which I guess is, what Top Gun Maverick is the perfect example of a legacy sequel, right? I would say The Force Awakens, actually. Or I The mean, Force Awakens. Yeah, argument, sure. Or The Force yeah. Awakens. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Torch um, Story. It doesn't Torch quite, Story 4. It doesn't quite. Toy Story 4 is a coda. I'm going to go down the ship on No, this I one. called it Torch Story 4. <laughs> uh, I guess spe- speaking of, like, you know, this kind of nodding to its origins, um, I think the opening scene is so, so effective particularly as someone who watched the first Toy Story over and over and over again as a kid, it does a really good job of, like, grounding you in the original and, like, reminding you why you love these characters so much, but also kind of, like, adding something new. Um, in case it's been a minute since you've seen it, the opening of Toy Story 3 is effectively recreating the opening of Toy Story 1, except in Toy Story 1, it opens with Andy playing with his toys, and we are, like, in Andy's room experiencing his play as if we were in the room watching this like nine-year-old play with his toys and toy story three it again shows the exact same play except we're kind of like in andy's imagination kind of seeing it as he presumably sees it in his head as he's playing and again like there are verbatim bits of dialogue copied from uh andy playing in toy story one the opening to toy story three and again it worked so so well on me personally where i just like again i was immediately taken back to being five years old again and uh my imagination is running wild and it just like it just really fucking works it is it's, it's not an exact recreation of toy story one because like the characters in toy story 2 are also there like jesse's there right. but um man it works it works so well for me it looks good it's exciting it is by far and away the best thing you possibly could call um cowboys and aliens perhaps um <laughs> And John Favreau's uh, screaming, crying, watching this opening scene. <laughs> um, I love the choice to set it in Monuments Valley, by the way. A little nod to John Ford yeah. films. Now remember this. When the horizon's at the bottom, it's interesting. When the horizon's at the top, it's interesting. When the horizon's in the middle, it's boring as shit. 
Um, it looks good. It's exciting. Uh, you get the reintroduction of the favorite characters fitting their kind of stereotypical part within Andy's imagination. Um, it's a really, 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 uh, nice, nice way to kind of, you, as you said, reintroduce everybody to what's this world. Um, and it, it just holds up by itself. Even if you're not just reintroducing it, it it's is. a really, really nice way to start the story. I think it's grounding you in nostalgia, but like you don't need the nostalgia for it to work. Right. It works regardless of the nostalgia. Well, to your point earlier, it's they're winning over new audiences. And mm-hmm. this, that opening sequence certainly does it. Yes. Um, okay, I'm just going to burn down my list of things that I – things I wrote down while watching the movie. Is that cool? Yeah. And you guys can jump in with anything. Okay. Burn it down, uh, so Josh. These are, these are going to sound very disconnected. That's because they are disconnected. That's okay. Um, do you guys remember the garbage man? In the first act, when uh, the Andy's mom takes the bag down to the curb, thinking it's garbage, when it's actually meant for the attic, then the garbage man comes. Um, eagle-eyed viewers on the internet at the time pointed out that the garbage man was wearing the same shirt that Sid from the first movie wore, so they assumed that the garbage man was Sid. Um, I didn't know if that was ever confirmed, I, but um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It the, is, I think. Has it been? I well. Because if you go to the Wikipedia page and go to the voice cast, Sid is in the voice cast. It says Eric Von Detten uh, as Sid for Toy Story mm, 3. Okay. And Eric Von Detten also voiced Sid in Toy Story 1. Also, did you guys know that the kid from Brink voiced Sid in Toy Story? Did you guys ever watch Brink on Disney I, Channel? I don't know what Brink is. Sorry. Okay. Well, then you just didn't grow up in the 2000s the way I did, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what you're doing. You're probably reading Proust or something while I was watching Proust, <laughs> having the time of my life. I was alive. Uh, can I tell anyway. a, a Sid anecdote? Um, I have a, a acquaintance who works basically as a social worker in schools, uh, little little kids. And to get to know them, she'll talk to them about like, oh, you know, who are these toys you're playing with? What are your favorite movies? Whatever. And this one kid who's like four or five, he's like, I love Toy Story. And she's like, that's great. Like, there's so many great toys in there. Like, do you like Woody more or Buzz more? Uh, you know, all the all the friendship, whatever. And he goes, no, my favorite character is Sid. <laughs> Just like that. And she was like, uh, put this kid on watch. Um, <laughs> that ain't no happy child. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, um, yeah, so yeah. Sid is the Garbage Man, Toy Story, two, Toy Story 3, and also, I again, I, I didn't know that the kid from Brink was the voice of Sid, and I was, like, flabbergasted to learn that uh, for this podcast. That's cool. Um, there's a Wayne's World reference when Barbie meets Ken, which I really, really enjoy because I grew up loving and obsessing over the movie Wayne's World. When Wayne first sees Cassandra in Wayne's World, uh, the movie slows to slow motion, and Wayne hears Dreamweaver playing, and that's exactly what happens when... Uh, Barbie meets Ken. I so, thought that only. I thought that only. Uh, I thought that only played during like the Cardinals playoffs when Weaver was pitching. That's TJ Weaver has a good throwback to like 2012 Cardinals <laughs> <laughs> six. Actually, this is TJ's limited limited knowledge. Wait, 2006. <laughs> yes. Jeff Weaver. Jeff Weaver. Yes, not Jared. Sorry, oh, no. Jeff. Yeah. The Dream Weaver. Do you want to bring up Todd Sotomayor too while we're at it? Alan Bennis, Darren <laughs> Oliver, Kent Bottenfield, Donovan Osborne, Pat Hankin. <laughs> Kent Bottenfield, who we trade to get Jim Edmonds with Adam yes. Kennedy. Uh-huh. Heath oh, man. Slocum. This conversation is for like four people. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't live in Detroit, let me tell you that. <laughs> the four people are me listening back to this, my dad listening to this, and that's probably it. Um, other things. Uh, 
Totoro shows up in Bonnie's room. Did you guys see that? Yes. Yes, he does. There's from a, she, my neighbor Totoro fame. She has a stuffed well, Totoro. The, the, I think the production designer or somebody who worked in this movie is married to um, Miyazaki's niece or something. There's some mm-hmm. kind of familiar connection that's like tangential. It may not be exactly what I just said, but it's close to what I just said. And so, um, as an homage, the, one of the toys in Bonnie's room is Totoro. Again, of my neighbor Totoro fame. Good movie. Um, what else? I like the world setup. I think this is good world building when they like arrive at Sunnyside and there's like this hierarchy, this social hierarchy that like they explain. Oh, it's explained to them one way, then they kind of learn it's a little different than how it's explained to them. And um, I also like that um, uh, the toys have like a card game. The toys at Sunnyside like go into like a soda machine and like play ca- play cards for batteries. It's not even it's not even cards. It's like a roulette with like a a pull string you know toy that spins around. Um, I, I just like like the social hierarchy uh, of Sunnyside. I think that's amusing to me. And there's like muscle and a guy in charge and like people on the totem pole that get beat up by kids. I don't know. It's just amusing to me. I think it's do you, good do you rem- remember the internet thing shortly after this where people said that like season three, I think of The Walking Dead was basically Toy Story 3 with the governor was like Lotso? I never watched The Walking Dead, so no, I'm not familiar with this. Can you it's- elaborate on that? Well, it's it's kind of uncanny. They find a place where they that's basically Sunnyside, where it's like, oh, good, they have walls, things are safe, these people are nice, like we're gonna be able to rest here. There's a lot of food and supplies. There's a guy with a charming Southern drawl, very Bill Clinton like, named the Governor that rules the place, and he seems to be like, ah, welcome, like, oh, I'm so benevolent, whatever. And then slowly, like during the night, they start seeing that there's some other scary shit going on. Um, I and feel like he... that's a trope, though. I feel that's not just. Like I'm thinking mm-hmm. about the most the first season of The Last of Us that kind of happens in like episode seven or eight I want to say, or maybe six. I don't remember. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I. It's not necessarily original uh, by any means to Toy Story three, but I do love the fact that they decide okay, this plot is going to involve um, kind of us pulling the wool over your eyes and surprising you with a, a shift. We're going to introduce you to the world that seems all peaceful and perfect, and we're going to introduce you to the villain. As this again, charming, easy to mm-hmm. like, seemingly uh, seemingly benevolent, yeah, yeah, benevolent figure, wise in his in his uh, his age and it, experience. And not only that, not only does it seem idyllic, but it's like also an answer to their problem, Correct. their problem of like, what do we do that Andy's going to college? Like, we just solved our problem. We found this perfect place that is like going to fix everything. Well, so supposedly the appearance but. of structure and the, also the appearance of community. All of the other toys, everybody's in mm. on it. Like, Lotso's the leader, yeah. but, like, there's all these other toys. Nobody's alerting them that, oh, yeah, we're going to ship you over to the, the destruction room. To the, you're now a member of the proletariat, right, TJ? Uh, exactly. exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> they have nothing to lose but their chains. <laughs> um, moving on, I think the scene where they reset Buzz is, like, pretty harrowing. And uh, kind of intense. <laughs> where they, like, uh, grab him and... Uh, violate him effectively, you know, against his will. It's it's pretty pretty they, intense. They do penetrate him with the. That, to, that was not where I was going, but I mean, well, yeah, honestly, like they, they do. Well, they're yeah. holding him down. He's screaming no, and they still are like doing things to him that he does not want them to do to, do to him. I'm not trying to like take it that direction, but like it is evoking something like that. Yes. And I remember when this came out, I was I, I had an internship at the time, so I was like um, a guy I worked with had kids who were like you know seven nine or something like that and like 
uh, they didn't like this scene. I remember him specifically coming to work and being like, yeah, my boys were like, why are they hurting Buzz? And like, no. they didn't like it. So um, oh. I think this is one of a, a number of intense scenes in Toy Story 3. This was rated G, and I think I remember that being controversial at the time uh, because uh, because of the monkey, which we can talk about, because of Big Baby, which we can talk about, but also <laughs> because of the buzz scene. I feel like people kind of sleep on how intense the buzz scene was when they reset Buzz. I do think when when he gets reset and he's like Spanish Buzz, I think that's not funny at all, and it goes on for a very long time. Yeah, the Spanish Buzz part is not. I think I think to to Josh's point. Well, the I'm not arguing scene, with Josh. I'm just carrying. No, that, no, no. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, I think it is effective in the moment in which they are resetting him. Mm-hmm. That's a terrifying scene, and plays something like you know out of Marathon Man or or any other crime film. Almost, it's not something you would expect to is see. Is it in safe? Animated film. Is it safe? I've never seen Marathon Man. I don't get the reference. Oh, in Marathon, Marathon Man, Man, somebody is asked in an intimidating fashion. If something is safe. <laughs> well, I'm intimidated by you asking me right now. So I think Spanish buzz, I think it's funny for a bit, but I do agree. It kind of goes on. They kind of overplay their hand a little bit there, but when he like dances around, uh, Jesse, I'm, that amuses me. I like that part. Okay. It's funny. Okay. Um, other things, uh, the backstory for Lotso chuckles and big baby that they were left behind by their owner <laughs> is mm-hmm. really harrowing and pretty devastating. I was watching this with my wife, Katie, and she said, quote, I feel sick watching the backstory yeah. for Chuckles Lotso and Big Baby. I love that story. And also, not for nothing, Chuckles is both effectively creepy and effectively sympathetic in a very strange crossover way. The, the way he's like lit at night yes. and is just sitting on that swing, like kind of staring out is, is really Lotso. disturbing. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, I think it's funny though. I think it's great. I think it's great. It is, it is I mean, that's also a trope. That's very tropey. Yeah, the, yeah. On purpose. There's nothing wrong with a trope that works. My one recasting note would have been that should have been Willem Dafoe. <laughs> that would have been good. I did not, look up. Not voicing it. Just Willem Dafoe. Uh, <laughs> just, just Willem just... Dafoe there. <laughs> <clears throat> Chuckles is voiced by the late Bud Lucky, who I'm not really familiar with. I think he, I think he was a Pixar guy. He was, uh, he was in Toy Story one, two, uh, Monsters Inc., Bugs Life, Nemo, Cars, Ratatouille, um, Incredibles. With with all due respect to him, his name sounds like something Anheuser Busch would put out around like St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> <laughs> He's the voice of the guy who like relocates the Incredibles. In the Incredibles, we can't keep doing this, Bob. Oh. That guy, yeah, I like that guy, Rick Dicker. Mm-hmm. It's a good character. Um, then that brings us to uh, I love a good. Uh, you guys know I'm stuck for screenplay structure. There's a great midpoint in Toy Story three. The midpoint is when uh, Woody Woody's in Bonnie's room because Bonnie took him home, and he's like made friends in Bonnie's room. Uh, it's great, and then he looks on Bonnie's computer and learns that Andy lives just around the corner. And so, in Woody's mind, he's going home to see Andy, he's going to college with Andy, and his friends are safe and sound at Sunnyside, and then he is told, no, they are not. They are prisoners at Sunnyside, and Sunnyside is not a good place. So, Woody is faced with a serious decision dilemma, which is, go home, go back to Andy, his one true love, his first love, and be there for Andy so he can go to college, or put himself in danger, go back to Sunnyside, and save his friends. That decision is the midpoint of the movie, and I think that's very, very well done. He has to make the decision to develop a class consciousness to not become part of the bourgeoisie, (laughs) 
but to empathize with the plight of the working man. Or, more literally, he has to decide what matters more, being there for Andy or being together with his people. So that's, again, no matter which way you read the movie, it's a good, good no point moment, I think. <laughs> Um, I also love, uh, when he goes, when he, he does decide to go back to Sunnyside and, uh, he meets the old phone toy, yes. which is another really great character that like, you know, tries to warn him when they first arrive and no one picks up the phone. So no one gets the warning, but then he, uh, actually listens when he goes back to Sunnyside. And, um, not only is that like a great character and a great like character design and great idea, but also like, I love the thing where it like. The phone toy gives Andy, like, the whole... I'm sorry, gives Woody the whole rundown of what they have to get through in order to get out of Sunnyside. It's basically like, you have to get through this, then you have to get through this, and once you do that, you gotta get through this. It's basically the scene in Ocean's Eleven when Danny Ocean's explaining everything to those guys, to what breaking the Bellagio is gonna entail. Like, say we get past the... Gu- get Use the car that we can't fake, and get past get the elevator that we can't move, and get through the guys with the guns. Like, we're I supposed to walk that. out of there with $150 million in cash on us without getting stopped? It's basically that scene, but it's a phone toy talking to Woody. And I appreciate the line delivery, because the you can unlock doors, sneak past guards, climb the wall, but if you don't take out that monkey, you ain't going nowhere. The, <laughs> just the, the the low tone of voice and the delivery is perfect. It's it's just perfect. And it, it effectively is giving you like a play-by-play for everything that's going to happen for the second half back to... Which is just like, I don't know, I always find that satisfying stuff. And then, after that happens, they do the thing where <laughs> Woody gathers his friends around and says, Okay, here's the plan. And then it cuts away before he actually explains the plan, and instead we just see the plan play out. Which is also a trope that I really enjoy. And did I send you guys the clip from Community? Yeah. Of that happening yeah. on Community? Okay. Uh, to those unfamiliar on Community, Abed does that in Season 3. He says, Okay, here's the plan. And then he starts like whispering, and then Jeff's like, Abed, how many times have I told you? No one's cutting away. You can't just like whisper nonsense. I'll be honest. I, okay, here's my real plan. I don't even I don't even know that I I hate calling that a trope because it's just a more efficient way to tell a story, I think. You don't have yeah, yeah. to repeat it, just show it. And you know what? It's funnier if you set it up that way. Fine. And I, I'd for I'd forgotten they do this in Toy Story One too. They do that exact same thing. Uh Woody creates a plan with the toys in Sid's room. And then, yep. again, we don't see him explain the plan. We just see them see the plan play out. Um, the monkey's very scary. That's my next note. And <laughs> this movie maybe shouldn't have been rated G to say nothing of the incinerator, but just <laughs> based on the monkey. And again, Buzz being in peril. I feel mm-hmm. like some parental guidance may have been suggested for this movie, <laughs> but I guess not. May I suggest um, some light parental guidance? <laughs> <laughs> I also love that G, like, general admission, like, you, we would just let five-year-olds walk in on their own here, unattended. <laughs> just... I, I may be misremembering, I feel like the MPAA kind of, like, said, whoops, are bad, after this came out. I think they, like, kind of admitted the fact that they just went with the G because they kind of trusted, hey, it's Toy Story, mm-hmm. like, whatever, but, like, maybe they should have done a little, maybe done another pass on this and, uh, <laughs> again, suggest some parental guidance. Parents were sending menacing letters and small... Uh, symbol banging monkeys to the MPAA members, and, going, <laughs> and their eyes were bulging out really yeah. scarily, like in Roger Rabbit. Um, next thing in my notes, there's a line where <laughs> there's a really funny scene where Barbie's like torturing Ken by ripping up his clothes, and um, there's a you guys aren't online, and I'm very online. So if I say Laurel and Yanni, does that mean anything to you? Oh yeah, Laurel, Laurel. 
Laurel. Laurel. Okay, so Laurel and Yanni, you guys are familiar with that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. There's another one, Green Needle and Brainstorm. As the similar phenomenon. If you're unfamiliar, it's a phenomenon where like you hear a sound and like if you think one word, you hear that word. But if you think a different word, you hear that word instead, even though the sound hasn't changed. It's just basically your brain playing a trick on you. Um, there's a moment where uh, Barbie tears Ken's shorts in half and he says, Oh, Barbie, those were vintage. And um, I've seen a TikTok where, again, the line is, oh, Barbie, those were vintage. But if you hear, if you think, oh, fuck, those were vintage, <laughs> you hear, oh, fuck, those were vintage instead. Let's see. Hawaiian surf trunks. Oh, Barbie, those were vintage. Oh, Barbie. Oh, Barbie. Oh, Barbie. I just had one of those recently, uh, rocking around the Christmas tree. When I was little, oh, yeah. I told my mom, mm-hmm. I'm like, yep. Mom, why are you playing this? And she's like, there's not bad words in here. Uh then she says, maybe we'll have some pumpkin pie. When you listen yep. to it. Later we'll have some pumpkin pie and we'll do some caroling. It's fucking maybe pie. We'll have some fucking pie. <laughs> yeah. Which, okay. Not to get too off topic. That's the only way I'm going to do caroling is if we have some pie. So, Not to get too off topic. I don't know why I didn't realize this before. Brenda Lee was 13 when she recorded that song. And her voice She's sounds like kicking. that of a mid. She sounds like a middle-aged like sounds like you sucked on five palmas before they hit the record <laughs> button on that one i think like yeah when mercedes mccambridge in the exorcist that's what she sounds like yeah. you know so just <laughs> that threw off my i'm gonna go smoke a few honest. cigarettes then we're gonna have some fucking pie and we'll do some carrot okay <laughs> but then i gotta do my pre-algebra homework <laughs> and i got girl scouts after <laughs> She's, she's not only is she still alive. She's like in her like yes. early seventies. She's probably our age. Yeah. <laughs> well, she's at least she's my age. Yeah. <laughs> Ken's like I remember when they used to pull her out of class and be like, "We need another another take. It sounds too much like <laughs> fine. I'll go. <laughs> I can't do another take. I gotta take my cigarette break. I've got art after. It sounds fine. <laughs> um. My next note, ooh, this is a bad look for me. My, my next note says that uh, Spanish Buzz was at the time, I no longer feel this way, but it was at the time one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. I oh. laughed very, very hard at Spanish Buzz when I was 20. Maybe, I mean, I, I didn't laugh as hard this most recent 20-year-old Josh uh, laughed at cultural appropriation, huh? How, explain to me how that's <laughs> no, cultural appropriation. It's not. I'm just messing with you. It's right not now. at all. <laughs> just relax. Um, have some fucking body and relax. <laughs> And then we'll do some caroling after we smoke our palm oils. <laughs> I mean, or she Virginia Slims, do you think? What is, what is 13-year-old Brenda Lee smoking to get fucking pumpkin pie? <laughs> Maybe it might be Virginia Slims. Some Marlboros. Um, my next note is that they do, they do the Return of the Jedi ending. You know what I'm talking about? The way that uh, Vader, the the way that Vader picks up the Emperor and throws oh, him down correct. the chute mm-hmm. in Return of the Jedi, they do that exact thing here with Big Baby and Lotso. Here. There are there are several film homages throughout this movie that are pretty effective. First of all, I had just rewatched Close Encounters of the Third Kind about two it. two weeks before I watched this. I need to hand I need to hand over my serious film person cards. <laughs> I've never seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Third Kind. And and you're such a huge Spielberg fan. I can't believe that. I've seen Close Encounters of the Richard Kind. Does that, does that count? 
Not, I don't think so. Not quite, at least not in this contest. By no means am I suggesting that that's Close Encounters is the only other film that uses the symbol banging monkey. But there is a frightening symbol banging monkey in that movie, and the lighting. It's the it's during the sequence. Oh, I don't give everything away. It's during an important sequence of an alien abduction in the film. And the lighting used with red flashes behind uh, the monkey coming through the windows is replicated in a scene with the symbol banging monkey in this movie, reminding me immediately of Close Encounters that just came to mind, obviously, because I had just watched it. Additionally, there's the scene, the, the kind of prison scene where they're all being put into the, the shelving, yeah. into the little, little um, buckets or, or, or whatever you want to call them. Um they're all being put away and they're being given their orders or being basically explained how this is going to work. It's is that almost, the great escape? It's almost straight out of Cool Hand Luke. Oh, um, you're right. Yeah, I have yeah. seen that. There's, it's, been a long, there's, long a, time. there's an explanation or discussion that's very, very similar. Not to mention it's similar to Shawshank Redemption. Um, and yes, the, the escape itself is quite a bit like The Great Escape. Um, so there are a yeah. bunch and the, let's be honest, we mentioned the phone earlier. The phone is basically deep throat from all, all the president's men to some yeah. degree. Yeah. He's on the phone quietly whispering scratchy. It might as well have been Hal Holbrook who was still alive. They could have gotten Hal Holbrook. They should have gotten Hal Holbrook. Yeah. I don't have any more, but what was the time? That he he was in yeah, 2010. Yeah. Um, Richard kind also voices bookworm in this. He's the guy who like produces the manuals to reset Buzz. Such a small role. Such a small yeah. role. Richard kind of deserves more. I mean, he he voices Bing Bong, so he's kind of he's made his mark in Pixar lore. Yes, mm-hmm. in uh, the previous mentioned Inside Out. Um, other things. I think there's a nice circular thing in the movie where like uh, Woody tries to save the toys from a trash truck in Act One, and then they have to try to save him from a trash truck in Act Three. At start of Act Three, mm-hmm. um, just you know, nice. It's 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 a circle. It rhymes. It's like poetry. It rhymes. Um, my next note, just a general question: Does Buzz fart in general? Please say more. <laughs> well, well, whilst in the trash truck, uh, a TV falls on Spanish Buzz, and somehow that like makes him come to and become regular Buzz again. And uh, he clearly does not have memory of how they got there so he doesn't know they're inside a bunch of garbage and so he just like effectively wakes up sniffs looks around and says that wasn't me was it is that implying that buzz oh. lightyear has the capability and has in the past past gas which Discuss. means these these toys eat and then defecate. And they have a digestive system yeah and yeah. they defecate they have a they have a rectum probably or at least a large large intestine mm-hmm. these, yeah these are the questions pixar intended the audience to have when watching the that's film. that's what's great about the writing is it's that iceberg type of writing like we're just gonna have a quick throwaway was that me and we're really suggesting whole things about the ontology of these toys that could there be a human centipede version but with toys from andy's room do toys need a bathroom or is there just toy <laughs> shit all over because they try to they do try to hide from andy that they're real so do they all like shit in a pile and then some, one of their job is to take that out Oh no! Is there like a dung beetle of the toy world that just like consumes the defecation from the toys? Hmm. Discuss. Hmm. It, 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 these are the, it, I, I think I need to rewatch it. I haven't thought of these things. It does bring into different perspective, though, the fact that oh, how horrible Sunnyside is. But you think back in Andy's room, that means they had to have been appointing that job to somebody, and it probably let's be honest, had, it probably wasn't Buzz and Woody. 
Have toys ever starved to death? Hmm. What's that like? Yeah, what happened to Weezy? What happened to Weezy? He had a drug I don't know. Um, <laughs> what's funny is uh, I was gonna bring this up later, but I'll bring it up now. Uh, back in 2011-ish time frame, I remember uh, a YouTube account that I actually was a big fan of at the time. Your, your movie sucks. I think he's still around. I think he's still making stuff. Uh, he had a video that was kind of just like kind of trash in this movie and kind of like Aww. picking it apart in like a really nitpicky in my opinion kind of bad faith way kind of like we were just doing but like actually and he was complaining about this being nominated for best adapted screenplay and i remember i don't i didn't, I didn't rewatch it before the recording but i remember him talking about like the uh the scene with like the magnet up top inside the dump and like how the golf club almost flies away and like Buzz mm-hmm. has to jump up to like hold it down, but then all three of them, Woody, Buzz, and Lotso, ride up the golf club later. Yeah. So like it's is and isn't strong enough of a magnet force to pull up the weight of the toys. But like, who gives a shit? That would never occur to me to think about. <laughs> so I actually did think about how magnetized the magnet was and what was pulled up and what wasn't. And then my second thought was, mm-hmm. oh, I'm watching a movie about talking fucking toys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good point. Yes, that's kind of where I was going. Uh, but you know what? We were really nitpicky about Inception, so I feel like it's only fair that we're nitpicky about Toy Story 3. So Okay, you know. but but which movie takes <laughs> itself way more seriously than the other? Correct. Which one makes a joke about you know farting? What? I was just going to say, if Inception had a fart joke, I would be less nitpicky about yeah, the mechanics Just throw the in a scene inside. where Michael Caine's like, you can't fart in limbo, and then boom. <laughs> it's. I would re-record an episode just for that. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Is there is there shitting in dreams, you think? I don't know. I don't know. I've never taken a shit in dream before. I don't know if Dom Cobb has. The rules are a little different. Um, okay. My next note says, uh, I cried the first three or four times I saw the incinerator scene, which is true. Uh, when they think they're about to die and they all just hold hands and accept their fate. Uh, holy shit. I cried in the theater. I cried in my dorm room when I watched it with my roommate. I cried probably the next two or three times after that. And I think I probably cried. I had a slight fever watching the movie for this most recent watch for this recording. So I was maybe a little bit more emotional than usual, but uh, I definitely cried this time too. Yeah. I, when I saw it in the theater did not, I got like goosebumps and had, I had a like, Holy shit. Like they went there, you know, Uh, also because it, you know, that's, they're not going to get incinerated. But it, they are kind of deus ex machina out of there, and it, the scene goes on longer. Like you're watching it, you're like, they're not going to get. Okay, this is going on for a while. Yeah, this is the first okay, time I saw the movie. For a while. The first time I saw the movie, obviously I was like, they're not going to kill these toys. They're not going to do yeah. this. But like, you're to your point, I kind of did start to think they were. Are they actually doing this? Like, yeah. I did start to think, is this actually going to happen? It's and then because it does my, go on for so long. Yeah, my my most recent watch of it, I was not quite sobbing, but like crying is an understatement um and yeah it was pretty rough i uh, i needed i needed to hug cooper right Wait, after so that. for the incinerator uh, or for the ending oh no the incinerator yeah oh uh, okay okay mm-hmm. um but you just said there were deus ex machina out of there which is true however i really respect the fact that this is a deus ex machina that was planted two and a half movies earlier yes, but that's not- a payoff from a setup two and a half movies ago i love that shit that's great Deus Ex Machina all you want. I think that works. That is the answer to life, by the way. If you ever find yourself in a rut, the answer is the claw. The claw. Uh, who voices those guys? Uh, uh, Jeff Pigeon? 
Jeff Pigeon. Jeff Pigeon. Oh, how the hell do you know these guys offhand? Do you know who voices Ariel and Belle and the aliens from Toy Story 3? I, it's all up in my head. Also, I who looked the hell at the Wikipedia is Jeff page Pigeon? earlier. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, who the hell I'm is looking at his Bud, other stuff? Bud Lucky. He really has not. I mean, he was in A Bug's Life and Monsters, Inc. and Wall-E. Okay, so he's been around. Oh, he does like storyboard stuff, too. He was like a story artist on uh, Turning Red. Hmm, cool, good for him. I have said this before in other media, but um, I once read that the best way to end a movie is give the audience what they want, but not in a way they expect. And I think this is a very, very good version of that. Um, yes. That yes. Idea. I, uh, and I, I love that you're, you're, I love that your description of it that way because, or that, that description of it, because um, I remember watching this in real time and I cried more at the end than I'll be honest than I did at the incineration scene. And part of it is because to TJ's point, I kept telling myself over and over watching it. They're like, well, obviously they're not going to kill off the toys. That That's a horrible way to end it. However, when it comes to the ending, parting the toys from Andy, like the, the culmination of all get, of they this. They get played with one last time. Right. Which is what they wanted from the first moment of the movie. They want to get played with by Andy. Which yeah. throws you back to the beginning of the film, which threw you back to the first film. By the way, the beginning of the film, we didn't touch on it. Um uh Randy Newman's uh You've Got a Friend in Me is playing during the kind uh, of throwback play playtime. Yeah. Uh during like the home movies. Yeah. Yeah. Um that all comes swirling back in the end during the playtime with Andy and Bonnie and the kind of transition from from and one... the torching passing. Yeah. yeah. And I'm getting goosebumps right now just talking about it with you guys. Like Yeah, because really the, the audience couldn't can't imagine parting like Part of it is because as human beings, you're like, well, if they were my toys, I would never want to give them up. I would never – like, I'd want them to always be there accessible to me. And yet, this is almost necessary for the characters, and it makes sense for the characters. Well, and to your point about not wanting to give up your toys, he's fully prepared to give up all the toys he was going to put in the attic. And then she reaches – Bonnie reaches for Woody, and he was not going to give her Woody. He was going to take Woody with him. And she reaches for Woody because she took him home at one point. She says, right. my cowboy. And he like pulls back at first, and then and he backhands like, her. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> That's that was no. That was um, the, those were the bloopers. They cut that out. But then he decides in the moment. No, I am ready to give up Woody, and it's such an emotional fucking moment where he decides. Yes, I will give up Woody, but like has to give like the soliloquy about how much Woody has meant to him, and like again, I'm starting to like tear up thinking about it. So like. So emotional. Because it also, and for our age group, we were in college at the time, there's also this kind of recognition of having to cut yourself off from your childhood. Yeah. You're giving, you're literally letting go. Again, a a character that's been with us since we were five, we have to hand off now that we're 20. That really did, like, hit me right in the right right spot. Um, Again, I was watching this with my wife, and Katie said, quote, I'm ill after the scene. (laughs) So this movie made her sick. And um, this ending... Is so good. I'm like legitimately mad they made a Toy Story four mm. because the ending of Toy Story three is so good. I think. Um, and again, I don't remember shit from Toy Story four. The other thing, this the end of this movie really drives home like another theme we've talked about previously in the movie is now that those toys are hers, it's the abolition of all private property, which <laughs> is how you sum up the theory of communism. Yeah, yeah, very good. Gold star for TJ for pointing that out. Um, I am coming to the end of my notes. 
Do you guys have anything else? Oh, oh, I, I did want to ask you this. Okay, so um, uh, I, I cried a lot watching the end of this movie. Um, more than I ever cried the Incinerator, probably. And, I don't know, maybe just it's been a while since I've seen it. Uh, I'm, I had a fever at the time. Um, I don't know, but I cried a lot. So I wanted to ask you um, what the most tear-inducing moment in Pixar is for you, because the ending of Toy Story 3 is up there for me. I don't know if it's number one, but it's close to number one. Uh, I wrote down in the outline that the ending of Toy Story 3 and uh, the kid and Coco singing Remember Me to Grandma Coco are two of the biggest tear-jerking moments for this guy in particular. And you can get the fuck out of here with the first 10 minutes of Up. The first 10 minutes of Up can go fuck itself compared to <laughs> Remember Me and Coco and the ending of Toy Story 3. IMO. Ken, what do you think? Is there a uh, tear-jerking moment in Pixar for you? I think, to be fair, I think the, I think the, the opening sequence in Up is pretty powerful. Get the well, fuck I'm not, out of hey, here! You know, I'm not saying that it's my number one. I'm just defending it a little. Particularly after you've been married, you're just kind of like, oh, that's a lot more brutal than I think I was anticipating from a, an animated she film. She had a good life. She had a book of adventures. It's still, yeah, but it's, it's still, it still gets you. Um, it's not necessarily the same way as what we're talking about. And to your point, I think I, I probably would, if you had just asked me, I probably would have named the ending of Toy Story 3 as that moment. Because in that scene, in particular, there's a couple of, of shots. There's a close up of Woody's face, um, as Andy describes how he'll never give up on you. He'll That's never give up on you. Absolutely. Yeah. Perfect. It's a glorious that the, shot. That was the moment that, like, really the waterworks started for me. Yeah. And then at the and then at the end of the scene, uh, Andy's like last look back and a quiet thanks, guys, followed uh, a beat later or a couple beats later by Woody's so long partner. That crushes oh, me so every partner. time. That yeah. that does it. It's it's and then pans well, up to the clouds. Yes. The clouds from Andy's room. Well, yeah, oh, the car man. driving off and the pan up. It's Yeah. Yeah, it's powerful. It's a powerful emotional gut punch because you've invested in if you've invested in the characters, invested in the story because to their credit, the screenwriters and the directors of all these movies, they delivered. They they gave exactly they delivered exactly what they needed to in order to get you to invest. And it pays off. Um, I would say, so I know you, what you're going to say to this, but I would put the beginning of Up up there. Um, Explain why it's so sad. Explain because so she sad has a opinion. miscarriage, Josh. <laughs> uh, that opening is all about the promises of like retirement and fulfillment that you make when you have a partner through your entire life and how stupid bullshit crops up that constantly makes you delay these yeah. things that are these simple pleasures that are going to give your life meaning and that are things that you actually earned and then the realization that at some point you can't keep putting it off any longer it's now too late and in putting it off that many times you were really just saying no. okay you're right that is actually okay that's a good point that's good yes the other uh one that i think works really well it's not necessarily sad it's like you know when you get those kind of misty like, yes. yeah, I'm not sad. This is just kind of beautiful. Um, Anton Ego's speech in Ratatouille when he likes oh, the yeah. food. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Delivered I mean, by I, the I late, great agree. Peter O'Toole. Yeah. Also. That's a good scene, too. Also, yeah. the lost. I, it's, again, I didn't full on cry, but I get misty. I get a little misty eyed. The loss of Bing Bong. Whatever your take. I was going to bring that up. Whatever your take. I was going to bring that up. Whatever you take. Bing Bong. No. I hate that. Whatever no. your take on this. No, 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 no. Well. 
again, I think it's a per- it's just a matter of personal experience. Like again, the first Toy Story came out when we were five. We were introduced to Woody and Buzz when we were five, and yeah. then watching Andy have to give him up and hand him over, watching that as a twenty year old, was unbelievably impactful. I saw Inside Out when I was 25, because that's how old I was when it came out. Right. Had I been, like, 13, 14, 15 when Inside Out came out, and I saw someone have to say goodbye to, like, a childhood imaginary friend, I think that would have been, like, quite a bit more impactful than, you know, me being okay. 25 watching it. There's an easy so. way around this, though. You just don't say goodbye to your childhood friends. Who do you think Cooper is? You forget! Like, yeah, but I keep again, my childhood yeah, that's, friend around. The key, the key here is that in in Inside Out, Bing Bong is complete. Is he's gone because he's forgotten, and exactly, the the yeah. the just the trauma and the devastation of losing something that you don't even realize you've lost doesn't necessarily have an impact. But watching that film and recognizing that we all probably have those is a little hard to swallow to some degree. There's mm-hmm. a part of you that's kind of the thing given up. And that's kind of thing in Coco, too, is, like, this woman's father is being at the risk of being forgotten forever by everyone. Right. Because the last person who remembers her is about to die, and, you know, she doesn't remember him in her old age, um, until Miguel plays the song for her. And, again, that song fucking kills me. And um, I know my dad is listening to this, so I'll just say this real quick. Uh, me and my wife and my brother and my sister-in-law sat both my parents down to watch Coco several years ago, and... Um, uh, I'm crying. My wife is crying. I'm prob- my sister-in-law is definitely crying, and my brother's probably crying too because they they have two little girls. So, um, and my parents were just like stone faced. <laughs> I was just like, "What the fuck is wrong with you guys?" And afterwards, they're both like, "Yeah, it was okay." And I'm like, "What the hell? What do you mean it was okay?" They're like, "It would have been better." I'm, I'm if, a wreck. If Diane Warren wrote this song. <laughs> oh my god! No, that was a uh, that was a uh, what's his name Lopez and um. What's the Robert the Lopez the, and uh, Robert Lopez and uh, they, Kristen, they were let it go. Yeah. Mm, I'm sorry, Kristen I don't know Anderson. Name, but they won two Oscars. Kristen that's Anderson. It, yeah, yeah. and that was their second Oscar, I think, after Let It Go. Um, they're both Egots, I think, right? Or at least yes. Tony Lopez is, if not both of them. Um, yeah. Shout out to Coco and shout out to my parents for apparently somehow being unaffected. I don't. I still don't understand. I mean, this had to have been like five, four or five years ago. I'm still like think about it. Every time I think about Coco, it's just my parents were immune somehow. I don't know. Um, I'd be curious to know what they think they're, uh, if they have an answer to what the status, they probably would laugh at me if I asked them what the status scene in Pixar is. They'd be like, we're talking about these are cartoons for children. We mean sad. <laughs> We've um, raised such a weak son. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's a generational divide. I don't know. Um, this movie was very successful. As I alluded at the top of the podcast, uh, 19-year, 20-year-old Josh said, hey, that's we can make a lot of money. And I was right. It did. Um, it was made for $200 million. I think it was one of the... It was one of the most expensive movies ever made at the time. At the time, very few movies had ever cost $200 million. Um, now there's like a, a good handful, maybe like a dozen or something, two dozen. Um, and it made... $415 million domestically and $1.067 billion worldwide. It hit a bill. And um, let's see. It was the, just some numbers. It was the seventh movie in history to crack a billion. It was the first animated movie to crack a billion. Um, it had all kinds of box office records. It was the highest ever Pixar opening weekend, the highest ever June opening, the highest ever rated G movie opening. And uh, all those have since been surpassed. Now the highest 
Pixar opening weekend was Finding Dory. The highest June opening was Man of Steel and then Jurassic World. Uh, the highest G-rated opening is actually Toy Story 4 now. So, like, it set records, but then, you know, lost them over the intervening decade. It was the highest grossing movie of 2010. And it was the highest grossing animated movie of all time until what Frozen. can do sold? Frozen. Frozen. Until Frozen Let It Go. Yes. <sighs> Letterboxd. Um... Number one review on Letterboxd is from Patrick Willems, who's a uh, YouTuber who I really enjoy. Um, had a great time crying alone in my apartment while watching a children's film! Exclamation point. Me too, Patrick. <laughs> Me too. Um, the second highest Letterboxd review is definitely uh, up TJ's alley. Three and a half stars. Authority should derive from the consent of the governed, not from the threat of force. Quote attributed to Barbie, which is a oh. quote Barbie says in Toy Story 3. <laughs> you know, I love the symmetry of me stealing a quote from TJ and then a letterbox review stealing the quote I was going to use at the end of the fucking podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> you should still do it anyway. You, still Ken, do it anyway. you have like, I don't know, 10 minutes to come up with another one. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Use that one from um, Kids Are All Right that you didn't get to use. <laughs> wait, did I leave that in? I can't remember yes. if I left that in. Yeah. Okay, I did leave that in. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> that episode already aired. Um, third highest review, five stars, all caps. And this is an allusion to Ken's point earlier. All caps. I need a Barbie and Ken, I need a Barbie and Ken movie, but it's this Barbie and Ken. Mm. Um, let's see. The, this is four and a half stars. The inverse of Up, where the ending is what's always praised to no end, and the rest of the film is kind of forgotten about. The good news is that unlike Up, this is a rich, thoroughly enjoyable story throughout the entire film. It's a shot fired up, I guess. I kind yeah. of feel the same way. I think Up starts well, has a good first act, and then eh, dogs, yeah. flying fighter jets. Up's not, yeah, Up's not a bad film, but yeah, it definitely kind of just teeters into mediocrity in the latter part. Here's a five-star review that I cannot relate to, I'm sorry to say. Things that have made my dad cry. Number one, Toy Story 3. Number two, literally nothing else. That's the power of this movie. (laughs) Uh, Couldn't be me. Um, People praising the trilogy. Someone called this the boyhood of animated films. I don't know about that, but Mm. I kind of get what they're saying. Um, Delicately and wonderfully made. You can really feel the heart and soul of everyone involved in every aspect of this film. Um... (laughs) This is one of my favorites. This is a five-star review. Should I feel sorry for that bitch Lotso? Because I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The most disturbing thing about this film by far has to be the complete lack of adult supervision in a daycare center. Yeah. (laughs) That that struck me, too. Um, Yeah. But... We could nitpick. That's, that's letterbox. We could nitpick if we wanted to. That's just we discussed that earlier. It's what do you feel good nitpicking a movie like this? For example, when you I go do, up to actually. college, do you empty out the entirety of your bedroom? Like, what is Andy doing? He's never coming I home. Is that the plan? Yeah, I think Laurie Metcalf is turning it into a yoga studio. <laughs> and he empties out his piggy bank. Come on, dude, get a job. Yeah, yeah. there's like fifteen cents in there. Um. All right. The last thing I'm going to outline for the Oscars is just to ask you guys what you think, and I'll start with myself. Um, and I think I said this before. Turn the mics on. I think that whether you want to call this a legacy sequel or not, it, it certainly is capitalizing on nostalgia. As twenty year old me identified, it is like trying to rope in a previous audience by feeding them something from their childhood, while also trying to rope in a new audience at the same time. And I think again, that's like been the 
major strategy of every major studio for the last 15 years. But this is like the best version of that, like the very best version of that. I think The Force Awakens is also very successful at the same thing. I'm a big fan of The Force Awakens. I think it's good at that specific thing, which is roping in an old audience while introducing you to a new audience. I think this is more successful at that. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure that's been, like, good for movies, that being the main strategy of every major studio for the last 15 years. But, like, it definitely worked here and worked really, really well. And, like, in some sense, every major studio has been, like, chasing this for the last 15 years. Which is, which is, really well. which is fine. I, I have, that's, it's perfectly fine because if a film works, it works. I think our criticism should be aimed more than at the studios and the people in charge. The fact that this and is, and Michael aren't, this is the, this is the hole they're digging themselves into unnecessarily. Um, the fact is, do you have to, as we discussed at the top of the podcast, do you have to get big voices to voice the lead characters in all of these animated films? No. If you do and it works, great. If you have a sequel that is a direct sequel or a legacy sequel or works as both, don't strive for that. Just create the damn movie and let it exist as is. Because Toy Story 3 works perfectly fine however you want to slice it. Dang, Ken. TJ, what do you think of Toy Story 3 in general? Um, I like it. I will say, and I have a, a friend of mine that will pull my fingernails out for me saying this. Um, there is a ceiling for me for as far how far I can enjoy animated slash kids movies. Um, it's just not for me that animated kids movies. Animated movies have to be, for me to really, really like them, they have to be... Um, they have kind to have of talking me- herons. I haven't seen that one. Uh, but they have to be like... It's pretty good. Kind of messed up or like, you know, um, an Isle of Dogs or uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio um, movies like that that like kind of really wouldn't work for kids at all um, because I hate children. Shut up, kids! Apologies to any children listening to this. (laughs) And also apologies uh, for fucking pie and doing caroling later. It's just that like... I find it hard to criticize, but I, you know, Spanish buzz and a lot of like those sorts of jokes that are aimed at the kids are like very kind of frivolous to me. And I'm not, what I'm trying to say is like, I can't necessarily say that makes it bad. That just to me is like, oh yeah, you're not the target audience for this. Um, Yeah, that's, I don't know. That's kind of what I got on Toy Story 3. I I like it, but there's, I think there's a degree to which i can like it i think well i push back only because i think pixar does a better job and we we've never really had this discussion on or off uh the the podcast i think but pixar generally does a better job of trying to reach out to as wide an audience as possible and to your point tj some of these jokes yes are probably going to land better with younger audiences but as a whole the story i think works really effectively whether it's an animated the fact that it's an animated film doesn't take away from the effectiveness of the plot or the investment you have in the characters because there's something rich in the story and in their interactions with one another and the message. And I do want to say, just as a criticism of Pixar, um, while the incinerator scene works for me and the beginning of Up works for me, it Pixar has gotten a... It's, it's like part of their formula to 
try to gut you in every single movie to the to point be. that to the point that that feels kind of contrived and manipulative to me if you're going to be doing that like every single time it's a it's a little bit like i'm really gonna piss some people off now um like game of thrones and everybody's like you just don't know which characters are gonna die it's like you're kind of setting why are you attracted to setting yourself up for this kind of emotional torture that's a chicken and the egg thing though because i don't think that pixar set out to do that and there was a reaction to that where everyone was like this is what pixar is doing to us and then in the 2010s Pixar, we started seeing Pixar maybe trying to do that kind of thing, but the mm-hmm. one, two, three punch, given how long it takes them to develop these movies, Wally up, Toy Story 3, I don't think they were like setting out, oh, we gotta make them cry in each one of these movies. I think that's something we, they may think about in the next decade. I, I think it is baked in there because that's the way that you then try to go, this is a movie of substance to adults. I don't think it's a bad thing that Pixar is aiming to and usually is successful in eliciting an intense emotional reaction from the audience. I think like that's actually kind of the point of storytelling to some extent, right? But but that it's always this like it never feels unearned to me. I, I like was that. gutted, you know. So I don't know. It feels it yeah, feels like it kind works. of forced. If it works, it works. But it's, okay. it doesn't it, always this, work though. Yeah, but okay, to your, this to is your gonna, point, it's not. I don't think. I think we so far we've discussed. There's quite a bit in this film that is not forced. For example, the the uh, incinerator scene. The fact that you can't really call it manipulative if it works. Or if you, let me rephrase that. Yeah. If it's manipulative and it works, then it's not forced. Because and it's still especially earned. And a movie textually about like mortality and like the fear of being thrown away and cast aside. Like ending up at the dump. And, you know, facing immortality head on. Um, this is going to get people mad at me. But, I, again, I think that most of the Pixar, like, gut-wrenching scenes that people always talk about, I think they work and they're earned. And there are movies that, like, attempt th- the bad version of, like, an in- attempted a- intense emotional reaction that's unearned is something like um, uh, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. Do you guys remember that from, like, 15 years ago? That movie? Yeah. yeah. I haven't seen that's it. That's a movie that people... It's a movie that people point to as like, like, oh my god, I was I was crying so much at the end, and like, it, it it's like, it's cheap, and like, it's cheap about like something that should not be taken cheaply, and should not be used for like emotional manipulation. Like, I, it's like kind of borderline offensive to me, honestly. Yeah. Um, and I never feel that about a Pixar gut punch. I always feel um, it's effective and it works and it's earned. So, um, I, I get what you're saying. I get that's kind of like become a little pat in the last few years, but like, I. I I'm thinking of like Soul, which by this point is like three years old. They kind of pull back a little bit, and like, yeah, it's more a bit more of a nuanced emotional moment in Soul. Um, so I feel like maybe they, I don't know, I don't really know what they're so, thinking. Maybe they're trying to avoid like a, a more direct, overt emotional gut punch and more of a nuanced one. But like, I, I don't know, it worked for me. Soul is exactly what I was thinking about when I was going to push back a little bit on what TJ was saying because I'm not sure Pixar is necessarily doing that thing anymore. Also, yeah. Soul is an underrated film that I I don't know if you watch Soul. That's I don't a think good it re- movie, man. It is, it is underappreciated. Soul does not reach as wide an audience as Toy Story 3, Wall-E, no. or Upward Doing. So It also came out in 2020. Yeah. Even though it was on Disney Plus over Christmas, so it should have gotten a big audience. I don't know how big an audience it got. But yeah, it's not it, the age range is not as big. Um, it's not targeting little kitties as as much. Um, I do want to 
if we can transition, I'd like to talk more largely or more widely about trilogies in general, because while I know Toy Please Story do. Toy Story has four films, but I will I will die on the hill calling the fourth one a coda. I'll defend it as an ex- as a separate film. It's kind of like Godfather Part Three, Mario Puzo's Toy Story. <laughs> exactly. Four, coda. I like I like the film. I will defend it, but it obviously is not anywhere near as good as what came before it. As a trilogy, though, when this film came out, the discussion in part at the time was not only oh this is one of the greatest animated films of all time. There was a, an active discussion. Okay, is this is this now one of the all-time great trilogies? Because in there is, to some extent, a completeness to the story, Toy Story trilogy one through three that you rarely see in trilogies uh, in cinema. I mean, we're, we're talking. You can look at uh, maybe Lord of the Rings does a really effective job of telling a story over across three films that is seemingly complete. Um, maybe, maybe we could argue the before trilogy. I'm just curious. What do you guys? I was thinking? gonna bring up the before trilogy. Yeah, absolutely before trilogy. Um, and does does I think? Do you think Toy Story fits into that discussion? It's one, two, three. That is. Yes, I do. Um, I, I I can never determine which I think is the best of the three. Um, I I could honestly give you any order. Some days I think the three is the best one. Sometimes I think three is the worst of the three, which is like, you know, whatever that means. Um, There's a consistency and a level of quality, I think, across the three Toy Stories that's um, not replicated in many other trilogies. Again, I think maybe the before trilogy. And what else did you say? I mentioned Lord of the Lord Rings, of the Rings, just because I mean they cheat. They they made them all together. Personally, I, I have I have more of a personal connection to the Toy Story trilogy than I do to the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So like, I have a slight preference for Toy Story over Lord of the Rings, but that's you know that's a matter of personal personal taste, I guess. But um, yeah, I mean I, I would put this up against any trilogy, really. You know, uh, real quick on Letterbox, I, I just want to say that someone said um, reviewing this as a trilogy. Quote: This is this is the one trilogy to me that actually gets better with every film. Yeah, they're pretty straightforward with no twists or plot complications, but that doesn't matter. What does matter is that these movies and everything in them just feels right. Characters, scenarios, humor, morals, and endings, especially the ending of this one. Not just the best way to end this movie, but the best way to cap off the entire trilogy. Everything feels complete. Everything's going to be uh, on their own. Uh, everybody's going to be on their own way elsewhere. Nothing needs to be done to enhance it. It's just right. So that letterbox user agrees this is a great trilogy and a great ending to a trilogy. Toys are TJ, we're out on trilogies and the Toy Story trilogy of it all. Um, I I'm here for that argument. I don't really remember Toy Story two enough. I think I've seen it twice, and I remember not really liking it either time. But it's it good, has man. been a very long time, so I could watch it and be like, "What What are you talking about?" Um, here's the TJest answer you're gonna get. Uh, Christoph Kieślowski's Three I Colors knew trilogy. I, I think fucking uh, <laughs> knew you were gonna throw the Three Colors trilogy. Uh, I think that needs to be in the conversation. Um, what about, uh, what I would, f- I would make fun of you, but this is called serious film people yes. after all. So I guess I can't really make fun of you. For I was expecting What's that the- or him to throw out, uh, the Bergman Troika of, of through the, through the glass dark later. Yeah. Uh, that's not Bergman. Didn't think of that as a trilogy correct. himself. So, but I don't, I don't know, you know what you do. I do. See, okay. I did just watch. I did just rewatch JFK this afternoon, this morning, with my wife and father-in-law. So, how about Oliver Stone's unofficial Vietnam trilogy of Platoon, Born on the Fourth of July, and JFK? How about that? Uh, I don't think that counts. Uh, I, okay. I I could leave all three. 
if I'm being honest. I've never actually seen Born on the Fourth of July. I need to definitely check that out. You know what, JFK? Dude, JFK fucking I, slaps, man. I am not wild about JFK. Again, just rewatched it. Ooh. Ooh. Can JFK. I want to cross over between Born on the Fourth of July and Legally Blonde so that she can go, Born on the Fourth of July. <laughs> Makes I think that's actually Legally Blonde, real too. Bad. That's actually the second Legally Blonde, Red, White, <laughs> and Blonde. So get your facts straight, TJ. <laughs> Get your legally blonde facts straight, counselor. Um, anything else on trilogies or anything else on Toy Story three before I transition to the Oscars and then get the f out of here? Mm-mm. No, let's do okay. it. Okay. This was nominated for Best Picture, which it lost to The King's Speech. Is nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay, which it lost to The Social Network. It's nominated for Best Animated Feature, which it won. Nominated for Best. It was nominated for Best Sound Editing. That's kind of funny to me. Best Sound Editing, which it lost to Inception. And it was nominated for Best Original Song, which it won for We Belong Together by Rainy Newman. Which I think I've mentioned on a different episode, this won Rainy Newman the Oscar for Best Song, but You've Got a Friend in Me did not win the Oscar for Best Song. That's right. Which is so strange to me. Well, I don't mind this one winning. The weird part is that You've Got a Friend in Me losing to, I think, Colors of the Wind from Pocahontas. That's correct, yes. Yeah, that's... That just feels all wrong. All wrong. Do you guys want to guess what the other nominees were for Best Animated Feature Film at the 2011 Oscars? Oh. <laughs> what this beat out? There's only three nominees, so this only beat out two other movies. Oh, the first... The, the, can you... Wait, can you one get of them, Can we get hints? Yes. One of the hints is this is the first installment of a series. I think they've made like three or four of them now. Was I've not seen a single one, but I hear they're good. Was, um, it's not Despicable Me. Or, or How oh, to Train Your Dragon um, was in there, right? How to Train Your Dragon is okay, correct. That's I hear those are great, and I've seen none of them. They are, they're they're I'm cute. They now. And the third, they're they're very good. I think they're cute, and they're very very good for family entertainment. Their quality. The third one is actually pretty good. Very good, I think. So uh, it's worth a look. Um, and then the second nominee to speed out for best animated feature is something I've not heard of. I believe it's a French movie. About a French mime, possibly. Oh, is it the um, uh, is it, the, uh, the, the illusionist? illusionist? I've seen that the one. The illusionist yeah. is correct. Is it good? Yeah. <laughs> yes? Question mark. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm gonna scroll down to best original song. Is there anything else in the best original song category they recognize? Well, we've already discussed. Guess. If are I they rise, called... okay. And all well, the others. If I rise, stand 127 up, hours. hear my voice. Be strong. Um, Out of curiosity, uh, wait a minute, not too wait a minute, bad. Before we get into, the, before you actually name any of the song, if my recollection is correct, I mentioned earlier, "Colors of the Wind" beat uh, "You've Got a Friend in Me," and I believe "Colors of the Wind" is Alan Menken. Was Alan Menken yes. not nominated against Randy Newman again in 2010 for he something? He was nominated against Randy Newman again. In what was he nominated? What was it for? Uh, for, the, for the movie Tangled. That's okay. And the song was like, this song's close to a TJ Best Original Song title. It's called I See the Light. That's close. That's close to a, a TJism for Best Original Song title. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's If I Rise by uh, A.R. Rahman from um, 127 Hours. And there's also a song from Country Strong called Coming Home. Wasn't that like, I can't even remember. Was that like, I could be completely wrong. Was that like a Faith Hill thing? I have uh, no memory of yes. this. Country Strong starred Gwyneth Paltrow, Tim McGraw, Garrett Hedlund, and Leighton Meester. 
So I'm not sure if Faith Hill is. Oh it, no, but maybe her husband. Tim I McGraw was going to say maybe I'm just thinking of Tim McGraw, um, and she maybe yeah, she was just at the Oscars. I do remember though I, the reason Mencken popped out at me. I do remember there being kind of like a a rematch between Mencken yeah. and Newman. Yeah, Gwyneth Paltrow as a country singer in Country Strong. That's um, that's what, is that's that like ex- her. her is that her last actual role before she just became Pepper Potts and did Goop? I don't, I don't remember. I guess <laughs> she was in Mordecai, yeah. Uh, the full title of that song is Coming Home and Putting Jade Eggs in My Vagina. <laughs> uh, I don't think that's true, no. Um, that is all I have on Toy Story 3 or the Oscars for which it was nominated. So unless you have something else to say about Toy Story 3, speak now for Hold Your Peace or save it for a Toy Story 4 episode. Coming to the Patreon soon. <laughs> That's a joke. False. We're not going to talk about Toy Story 4. Yeah, no. false. Anything? Good? TJ? No, good? I'm good. Yeah, yeah. Ken? Good? I'm I'm good. Let's. I can't wait for next week's episode. Yeah, I was going to say, do you know what next week is? I, uh, True Grit. Grit. Yeah? You're not the beef. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I've seen True Grit since at least college. So I probably watched it two or three times when it came out. I don't think I've watched it since then. So I'm like... Very excited to watch True Grit again. Yeah. The Forgotten Cone Brothers movie. Whenever I'm listing Cone Brothers movies, this is always like the last one that I name. Because I, mm. I don't know, it just always slips my mind. So yeah. Uh, thank you for listening. I hope you had a happy new year. When is this coming out? Give me a second. Yeah. Yeah, it's a happy new year. Happy 2024, everyone. Well, this actually is not the first episode of 2024 for us. This is the second episode of 2024. No, but it's still 2024. That's true. Uh, I still hope you had a happy 2024, <laughs> a happy new year, despite, you know, I probably said the same thing last week. It's going to take um, everyone a week to get the kinks out of the new year anyway. Let's just give them the time. Is there a Seinfeld bit where they say, like, when when's the latest you can say happy new year to somebody? That's like a, a curb your enthusiasm thing. So he starts doing That's, it spitefully. Okay. Happy new year, Larry. Happy new year, Mocha Joe. When, when is the cutoff, according to David, Larry David? Happy new year. It's a little late, frankly, for the Happy New Year's, you know? Why? Just happened a couple weeks ago, right? Yeah, that's too long. Uh, Statute of limitations is kind of run out on the New Year's. Three days. Plenty. Three days. This is coming out, this is coming out January 11th, so we are past the week. Oh, so Happy New Year anyway. I don't give a shit what Larry David says. Happy New Year, Larry! (laughs) Um. You can go voice George Steinbrenner on Seinfeld, brah. Happy New Year, Mocha Joe! I still, like, just got used to writing the year as 2023. Yeah. Yeah, man. Mm-hmm. I still remember it being 2020 and being like, man, I can't just write, like, month, day, 20. I have to actually write out 2020. Yeah. And I I'm still have that thought every time I write the date out, even though it was four years ago now. Um, regardless, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed Toy Story 3. I hope you rewatched the movie and cried, if you're so inclined. And I hope you join us again next week for True Grit. And we'll see you then. Have a good week.
nice ascot.